it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to episode 246 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. For today's episode, we head to the northeast of England, to North Tyneside, and we look at the events of one evening in the year 2000. An evening that would change so many lives forever. But before we get to the story, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially those new members of this exclusive club. That is Mark Clements, Michelle Zamparetti, James Bancroft, and Beck to myself, I miss you. Thank you all so much for your support. This episode is brought to you by Trip CBD. Trip recently conducted a survey of a thousand Brits and 75% of people said that 2020 was their most stressful year ever. I know what they mean. It was a tough year, wasn't it? And 2021 has shaped up the same way for me, trying to manage work, family and hobbies, all with those changing and often confusing restrictions. The Trip brand was created by founder Olivia, who when working as a lawyer in London, was feeling stressed. She was burnt out and overwhelmed with the daily grind. She found CBD to offer amazing relief, but she struggled with formats and flavours, so she started her own. And what a story it's been, with the products now stocked in Liberty, Selfridges, Harvey Nicks and more, bringing CBD into the mainstream so more people can find their calm in the everyday chaos. I love the drinks, they're really tasty. And the oils too. In fact, I've just reordered yet again. But don't take my word for it. Forbes loved that the oils were powered by natural botanicals. And Vogue said that the drinks are calming, chic and very tasty. To take a trip to happy days, go to drink-trip.com. Anyone listening to this show can get 15% off their first order with free shipping with the code CRIME15. That's drink-trip.com and use the code CRIME and the number 15 to claim your 15% off. This episode is sponsored by Beer52. Have you joined this club yet? Well, good news, as a listener of the show, you can get a case of craft beer from the USA on me. It sounds good, right? All you have to do is go to beer52.com slash truecrime and cover the £5.95 postage and they'll deliver eight delicious craft beers to your door. That's simple. Beer52's experts are on a mission to find the very best beer anywhere on the planet. Each month they visit a different place, find the best small batch breweries, sample their finest craft beer, sounds a great job doesn't it, and then carefully create a case to be sent to their lucky members. This month features incredible UK exclusive beers from Temperance Brewing, Noon Whistle Beer, and many more coming in fresh from the state of Illinois. The case that you order will include the award-winning beer magazine Ferment, as well as two tasty snacks to wash down with the beer. There's no minimum commitment, you can just take the free case, 
try the beers and see what you think. And in the unlikely event that it's not for you, you can pause or cancel any time at all. Just go to beer52.com slash truecrime to claim your free case now. That's beer52.com slash truecrime. Let's quickly set some context for today's story and play our guest the month and year game. Top of the UK music charts was Toka's Miracle from Coco vs Fragma. In the US, Santana topped the charts with Maria Maria. And in the Australian album charts, the top spot was Killing Heidi with Reflector. Nope, me neither. In the news this month, South African cricket captain Hansi Kronje was sacked after admitting dishonesty by match-fixing allegations in India. You'll remember this one, that When Louis Met documentary by Louis Theroux premiered on BBC Two in the UK, featuring Jimmy Savile. In UK true crime news, Kenneth Noy, the so-called M25 killer, was sentenced to life imprisonment, and Tony Martin was also sent to prison for life for the murder of a 16-year-old burglar he shot dead at his Norfolk farmhouse. Remember that one? Did you get the month and year? It was April 2000. Uxton is a small village in North Tyneside. It lies a couple of miles from the more well-known seaside town of Whitley Bay. Uxton itself is perhaps best known for being the location where the children's TV show Superground was filmed. Don't pretend you aren't a fan. 23-year-old Sarah Cameron was of Finnish descent, having been born in Helsinki in 1976. Academically, she flourished. The multilingual student appeared to excel in anything she turned her hand to. She was fluent in five languages, but in sport she was equally as talented, and as a keen schoolgirl sprint athlete, Sarah had trials to represent her country at hurdling. She was technically a foreign student, having been born and raised in Finland by her mum Serpa, before moving to Britain in 1998. She became fluent in English and was also a dual national from her British dad Roy, who often visited her from his Devon home. Indeed, Sarah's aptitude for learning was evident in her everyday language, with people regularly commenting that her English was better than many of her British counterparts. Sarah had rented a house in Uxton with a friend called Vanessa, and she quickly adapted to the life of the village, becoming a popular member of the community, and she could often be seen power-walking around the village and amiably chatting to local children and elderly residents. She really was immersing herself deep into her surroundings, and she secured part-time bar work in two Whitley Bay nightclubs, known as Deep and Time, as well as finding the energy to work shifts at the Rye Hill College Gym in Newcastle. She would also train here, and although physically slight, she was exceptionally fit. She managed these jobs around her studies at Northumbria University, which is renowned for its excellent sporting standards. She was partway through her sports management degree, but was not in that common predicament that students sometimes find themselves in at the end of their studies for the summer where they don't know what to do next. Rather, Sarah knew exactly what she wanted to do and what lay ahead should have been the greatest adventure of her life. She landed a job at the forthcoming Sydney Olympics and was due to go to Australia 
to work with the Olympic Committee. Sarah had enjoyed a similar experience four years previously at the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, and as such, she was well aware that her Australian experience would be one to cherish and to savour forever. Before her adventure could begin in earnest, however, she had the excitement of a leaving party to look forward to. On Thursday the 20th of April, she and her friends set out to send her off to Sydney in style, where they planned to enjoy the lively nightlife of Newcastle. Just after 8pm, Sarah made her way down Dean Street to the popular quilted camel bar on Newcastle's quayside, where she and her friends reminisced and enjoyed the music. Scarcely able to believe that their friend would be heading to the other side of the world the very next day. After enjoying time at the Camel, Sarah moved on to the nearby Crown Posada Inn on Dean Street. The group remained here for a short time before Sarah began going round her friends, saying farewell to all of them. She was due to leave for Australia in literally hours, so this was not an evening for an all nighter, and shortly after 11 pm, Sarah finally began to make her way home as she headed up the steep bank that leads to the quayside until she reached the Monument Metro Station in the city centre. If you aren't familiar with it, the Tyne and Ware Metro service is an underground and overground travel service, a bit like the Tube in London, albeit on a far smaller scale, and unlike the London Tube, people do sometimes look you in the eye. It serves its purpose officially and Sarah's journey back to Uxton would not be a long one. The cameras at the Monument Station caught Sarah hurrying to catch her train towards the coast, which she ultimately caught as 20 minutes later she was again pictured, this time staring from the train window at Long Benton Station, her mind doubtlessly filled with excitement at the prospect of her forthcoming adventure. Shortly before midnight, she got off the train at Shiremore Station, the closest station to where she lived, less than a mile away. From here she would walk the remainder of her journey along a well-lit route through the village. She was carrying a purple plastic presentation bag containing a clutch of presents from her friends. Despite the darkness of the night, there had been nothing to have unnerved Sarah as she made her way home, like many times before. Passing familiar landmarks such as the Grey Horse Pub which was having a busy evening of Easter drinkers. Turning right here would take Sarah to a busy dual carriageway, the A186, which is flanked by fields and grassland. Once she'd navigated this, she'd be literally yards from the front door to her flat in Garden Terrace. But Sarah never made it to the safety of her flat. Somebody had been stalking her movements and attacked Sarah under the veil of darkness, strangling her before sexually assaulting her and dumping her lifeless, naked body in a field. The plane for Australia took off one passenger short. The next morning was Good Friday. At 9.30am, her body was discovered by a couple out walking their dog in a field close to the dual carriageway. A post-mortem revealed that Sarah had died from strangulation, but it also concluded it was likely she'd been taken by surprise as there were no defensive wounds to her body. Police immediately opened the hunt to catch her killer, and the people of Uxton could scarcely believe that the murder had happened to them in their village. Disbelief and shock were very much the overriding feelings at this time, 
and tributes and condolences flooded in for the popular Sara. A spokesman for the university said, We are shocked at Sara's death. She was such a fit and healthy young woman, who is a very popular member of the university community. We are all very saddened by her death, and would like to express our sincere sorrow to her family at this time. And friends and fellow students left floral tributes at her flat, as the community tried in vain to make some kind of sense of what had happened to this person with so much to live for. Having combed the area of the crime scene and beyond, police found some of her clothing amongst other items in the grounds of South Wellfield Middle School, some several hundred yards from where Sarah's body had been found. The man leading the inquiry was Detective Superintendent Steve Bolam of Northumbria Police. Immediately, it appeared there was a prime suspect, and police made desperate appeals to determine the identity of a mystery man seen following Sarah on her final journey. Bolam said, We know that Sarah got off the metro at Shire Moor. She walked towards the Grey Horse pub and crossed over the A186 towards Uxton. There is a man seen walking behind her, going in the same direction, towards Uxton. Obviously it's crucial that he is traced. I'm appealing for him to come forward, but if anyone knows who he is, please get in touch. The man was described as white, of medium height, with dark hair, and aged in his late teens or early twenties. Detectives believed he was possibly wearing trainers, dark trousers, and a waist-length fleece. It wasn't a description that stood out but nonetheless, it was a line of inquiry to follow. He made further appeals for anyone who may have seen Sarah on the metro or walking from Shiremore Metro Station near her home to come forward, and chillingly, the police also warned other young women in the area to remain vigilant. Despite the desperation that people shared in hoping the killer would be quickly caught, it rapidly became apparent that this would not be the case. And as no progress was made in the month following the murder, police extended their efforts and they broadcast a reconstruction of Sarah's last movements on Crime Watch UK. The transmission did open a few new lines of interest, and detectives claimed that one of the names supplied following the appeal was interesting. Three people also called the programme, claiming that they'd witnessed events leading up to Sarah's death. Presenter Nick Ross said that the investigating team had taken a call from someone who had seen a man following Sarah from Shiremore Metro Station. On the surface, this was positive news, but of course the identity of the man still needed to be confirmed, and sadly, this continued to elude police. Meanwhile, it had been six weeks since the murder of Sarah Cameron. The time had come for her body to be laid to rest, with her funeral service conducted at Whitley Bay Crematorium on June the 2nd. The service was attended by close family and friends from both Helsinki and her new home in the UK. The private ceremony was obviously a time of overwhelming grief and torment. Furthermore, the man responsible was still at large, and until justice had been served, there was an overwhelming feeling that Sarah could never be quite at peace. As always, when we examine these types of cases, it becomes impossible for our hearts not to go out to those closest to Sarah. Roy Cameron, her dad, revealed on many occasions the pure torture the loss of his daughter had caused him. 
a year after her murder, nobody being charged. And Roy made an emotional trip to Northumbria University, where Sarah had been studying, to collect the degree that she should herself have received. Following the graduation ceremony, he visited a park bench which was placed a memorial to Sarah outside the Ellison building on the campus. Speaking at the ceremony, he offered an insight into his world about his daughter, saying, My daughter's death has taken the meaning out of my life. It should have been one of the proudest days of our life, but it will be filled with sadness. To say she had a brilliant future ahead is an understatement. Of course, the pain and torment extends beyond her immediate family. Sarah's flatmate was one person, along with many others, who decided that she could no longer continue to live in the area that had been such a happy place with her friend. The constant reminders were everywhere. And so as people tried to return to their lives, the police investigation continued. In the time that had passed since the murder, officers had been working hard for the breakthrough they so desperately needed. Almost 3,500 swabs had been taken from local men. There were almost 4,000 homes in Uxton and the immediate surrounding villages, all of which were visited by police officers. Almost 9,000 people had been quizzed by police, but still the mystery man that had been seen following Sarah had not been identified. Detectives still believed that the answer lay locally. They believed it was a local person who'd been responsible. In September 2001, police were following a new line of inquiry regarding two men who they suspected may have sat on the same train as Sarah on her way home on the evening of the killing. They were seen running across the track at Long Benton Metro Station before getting on the train that Sarah was travelling on. Police had traced many people who'd been on the metro that night. But the enhanced CCTV footage of these two men began to take priority in the case, with police believing that they may hold the vital information needed. Again though, this information still remained agonisingly out of reach. On the second anniversary of his daughter's death, Roy Cameron once again appealed to the public at an emotional press conference at North Shields Police Station. He said, This person took Sarah's right to life, but he can't take away her right to justice. He can't hide forever, and he can't hide from the world in which he lives or from his face in the mirror. He may have turned his face from family, friends and colleagues, but if they know who he is, they are then part of the sickness. Talking about how it had been for him, he said, In the beginning it was just shock and disbelief that such a thing could happen, but after the graduation ceremony last year, which was a terribly emotional day, there was suddenly nothing. No sound of her voice, no light in her eyes, and no smile on her face, which were all the things that I depended on. It was impossible not to be moved by this plea from a desperate father, and in response, Detective Superintendent Bolam reiterated that his officers were as determined to catch the killer as ever. He said, This case is still as active as it was on day one, and the team of detectives still as committed as on day one. There is a team of people that this case has affected and who are motivated to get a successful conclusion. He continued that he was still keen to learn the identities of the men seen running across the track at Long Benton, and he asked people to consult police should they have any suspicions about anybody. 
The two men that the police were still so keen to talk to did not come forward, and indeed to this day, they are still unknown. However, it would prove immaterial, as a domestic incident would provide police with the breakthrough they so desperately craved. A seemingly innocuous ruckus with a neighbour, how often we've heard this before in this podcast, would provide police with the link they finally needed to nail justice for Sarah and her family. We should remember this case was over 20 years ago, and at this time the investigation into Sarah's murder highlighted the changing face of detective work. Of course, traditional policing methods remained invaluable, but the evidence that could be provided by DNA was ever more increasingly being used to secure convictions in difficult cases. In early 2003, a neighbourly dispute in North Shields, not far at all from Uxton, erupted when a man named Michael Robinson began kicking at a neighbour's door, causing extensive damage to it. Robinson was arrested and cautioned, and a little cotton swab was wiped inside his cheek so the police could take a DNA sample. It was now only a matter of time before a match was made, with DNA having been extracted from the murder scene three years earlier. Today a match will be made with far greater speed, but because the original sample from the murder scene had been analysed before the service was so sophisticated, the process took longer than usual. Nevertheless, when Detective Superintendent Bolum received the call from the Forensic Science Service with news of a match, the relief and joy he felt was palpable. He said, I couldn't speak when he told me we had our man. All I could say was that I'd call him back when it had sunk in. Michael Robinson was traced to his new home in New Haven, East Sussex, some 360 miles south. Perhaps the move was the action of a man with a weight of guilt on his shoulders, and miles-wise, he could not have moved too much further in Britain to escape detection, or so he probably thought. But on Friday, February the 13th, 2004, at 6.30am, the knock on the door he'd always dreaded finally occurred. He was arrested by Northumbria officers, with the assistance of Sussex police, and brought back to Northumbria for questioning. During the first five interviews, Robinson flatly denied having anything to do with Sarah's murder. Detectives delved into his life, and it didn't paint a particularly pretty picture. It soon became apparent that he was a moody loner and a heavy drinker with an aggressive temper. A divorced father of one, he left the household cavalry ten years earlier and drifted around the country in and out of a range of jobs. At the time of the murder, he was working as a bus driver on Tyneside and living in a North Shields flat. It was not until police interview number six that police played their trump card. The scientific evidence was presented to Robinson, whereupon, somewhat to the surprise of the team of detectives, he readily admitted his guilt. Under interview, Robinson admitted that he'd fantasised about rape and had stalked two women previously. It transpired that on the night of the 20th of April, Robinson had been out drinking in Newcastle with colleagues from the stagecoach company that he worked for. Travelling home, he'd boarded an earlier metro train than Sarah, so their paths should never have crossed. But Robinson, having seen the strikingly pretty Sarah on another train, got off the train he was in, which would have taken him home, 
and dashed across the tracks at Long Benton and went into Sarah's coach. As she left her train, he followed her into the darkness. Ultimately, he attacked from behind, bundling her into bushes and punching her to the head in an attempt to subdue her. He stripped Sarah of her clothes and attempted to rape her, but failed. When he heard somebody approaching, Sarah's fate was sealed, and in panic, Robinson strangled her. When he realised she was dead, he dumped Sarah's clothes before burning his own. Then he returned to life as normal, amidst the very public clamour to apprehend the person responsible. Robinson lived close to the murder scene, and he used the metro train service regularly. At each of its 58 stations were posters with Sarah's face on them. Imagine that. More than this, those who knew him revealed that Robinson had actually been heard to joke about the murder with friends whilst out drinking, casually joking that he and his mum would have been responsible. Police did finally now have their man after almost four years, and on the evening of the 14th of February, Michael Robinson was charged with the murder of Sarah Cameron and her parents Roy and Serpa informed of the developments. After an appearance at North Tyneside Magistrates Court the following morning, Robinson was remanded in custody where he would remain until the date was fixed at Newcastle Crown Court. On Tuesday the 28th of September he appeared at the Crown Court for a plea hearing where Robinson's barrister advised that it was a remanded man's intention to plead guilty. At least Sarah's family would be spared the additional pain of a trial. On Robinson's day of sentence, the prosecuting QC told the court that for four years Robinson had shown no remorse and breathed not a word of what he had done and ultimately moved from the area, despite knowing that Sarah's family would not be able to grieve until her killer was brought to justice. The court also heard more about Robinson and how his temper flared following bouts of drinking and cannabis use whereupon he was known to lash out suddenly on his brothers and sister without any provocation. When it came to sentence, the judge told him he would have been sentenced to 24 years in jail, but owing to his guilty plea, the term was reduced by a quarter. A further 249 days were taken off as time served since his arrest. Taking these things into account, Michael Robinson was ordered to serve just 17 years in prison. The judge also praised the exceptional police work, which trapped the killer, saying, This was a massive and comprehensive inquiry, and it's plain to me that the police have carried out their work to the very highest standard. Similar sentiments were echoed by one of Sarah's friends, who wrote to detectives thanking them for their dedication in bringing the man to justice. It read, Sarah was a kind, happy, bubbly person who touched the lives of everyone she met. It's a shame you never had the opportunity to meet Sarah in person. Then you would know firsthand just how worthwhile this fight has been and how the person who you were fighting for was more than worth the effort. In another gracious and compassionate act, Sarah's dad Roy once again summoned the courage and empathy which he displayed at every turn since he and his family had been thrust into the public glare in a quite remarkable showing of humanity. With his fight for justice over, he was delighted that his daughter could finally rest in peace, but then he displayed mercy that I suspect not many of us would be capable of. He said, This day was for Sarah. Sleep now, sweetheart. Your mum and dad will always have the memory of our beautiful daughter. Because we are parents, our heart goes out to the family of this man, 
with the pain they will now have to bear. May God forgive him. Much time has now of course passed since Sarah's murder, and Michael Robinson may well be released next August, in a little over a year's time. Uxton will of course never forget Sarah, who in the minds of those who knew her will remain forever young. A plaque dedicated to her memory adorns the entrance to the village, and a red rhododendron bush was planted, a symbol of her effervescence and lust for life. I think the final words in our story today should go to Sarah's father. On speaking about the success of the police, he said, We have the answers that we have so desperately needed, except the final one. Why do we do these things to each other? So what do you make of what we've heard today? It is unfortunately another case of a woman just going about her normal life, being preyed upon by a man. How can this keep happening? When's it ever going to stop? And when we hear of Sarah's life, her energy, ambition and desire to live a full life, and contrast it with the violent loser like Robinson. And yet he took away her dreams on that fateful night, just because he happened to spot her on a train. Without being over the top, it's enough to make despair for the human race, isn't it? But, and it is a big but, I think, her dad and his compassion is a shining light in this tale of utter horror. People like him show us that despite all the awful things we hear about on this podcast, there is still hope for us all. Things don't need to be like this. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please head over to the Facebook group. You'll be made very, very welcome. And to support the show and keep me producing a weekly podcast, if that's a good thing, please do head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. You'll find loads of bonus episodes and other exclusive content. I'd really appreciate it and I hope to see you there. So that's all for me for another week. Thank you again for taking the time to join me. Why is it when I live in such a remote area, suddenly a helicopter is overhead, making so much noise? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, on that aerial bombshell, that is all from me for today. So thanks again. And until we speak again next week, please don't let all the others spoil it. I know what it's like. Stay classy. Cheerio for now. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.